Glad to be back radioing and thus back best of-ing. Thanks for checking out the podcast. There is a ton on it this week. Lots of guests on the Sunday show, uh, so thus there is a lot of material. Ian Eagle of the NBA on TNT, Rick Hamilla of NBA TV, both those guys talking Wizards, Hawks, and a little bit more in terms of the playoffs. NFL Draft, Eric Edholm, Brian McNally, Chris Russell. Uh, I talk about Joe Mixon a little bit, and so that is all on the podcast today. Without further ado, here is said podcast. We get now, though. So the part of the show that I'm most looking forward to, if I'm being completely and totally honest, with all due respect to all of our guests who I'm very excited to talk to and who will be very informative, and, and they'll, they'll probably be your favorite part of the show. This will be mine. Because Markeith Morris gives a less than a fill-in-the-blank. Less than a you-know-what. This is a man, when asked about hitting a big shot, uh, said his wife has always told him he has large. <clears throat> uh, this is a man who uh, just just watch him, just watch. Him. He's he's not fake tough. That's that's how I'll put that. Marquise Morris is a real dude, and uh, he's pretty fed up with Paul Millsap. And in games one and two of the series here in Washington, uh, that. Played itself out in Washington's favor. Paul Millsap was kind of out, knocked off of his game. Markeith Morris was awesome. Didn't go that way yesterday. And I actually, the first quarter of the game, I went up listening to on the radio, and Glenn Consor, the uh, the the fine analyst for Wizards Radio, was just apoplectic at the officiating. And said that anytime Paul Millsap touches the ball, he thinks Paul Millsap has a whistle and blows it. Because that's how often Paul Millsap was getting getting calls. And the reason Paul Millsap is getting calls, according to Markeith Morris, is is this. Good game. He, uh, you know, he did more for his team tonight. You know, and me as a man, you know, you take your wins with your losses. And I take my wins and my losses all the time. Uh, and, you know, he just did more for his team. It's a crybaby. You get all the calls when you're a crybaby. That's how I went tonight. <laughs> classy, 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 classy crybaby. Oh, Markeith. Look, Paul Millsap has talked all series about how physical this has been and how I, I the the quote of the series so far, not the MMA, not the double MMA, um, the, the quote of the series uh, was Paul Millsap after game two in which the Wizards definitely were on the short end of some officiating. Uh, I was asked about the officiating. He said, I liked it. It was physical and they called a lot. Nobody likes that except for apparently Paul Millsap. So he's making nice with the refs, and I'm not saying that in a nefarious way. He's just saying, like, hey, thanks for calling all this stuff because every time they touch me, it's a foul. Except for every time they touch you, Paul, it's not a foul. Like, basketball is a contact sport, and there is legal contact that can happen during a game, and there's a lot of it. This is a physical series. But Paul Millsap yesterday got the calls, whether it's home court, whether it's just he's really... He is, as a skill, much like James Harden, very adept at drawing contact. And he got himself to the free throw line a ton. 
it's a credit to him. Millsap yesterday, 12 of 20 from the field and a 5 of 9 from the line. I mean, in a way, the Wizards got lucky as you, they lost by 18. Uh, I guess it really didn't matter that much, but it could have been worse if Paul Millsap didn't have a bad day at the free throw line because he's, he's not Dwight Howard. He is a good free throw shooter, but he was super efficient from the field. Now, that quote from Markeith Morris made its way to the press conference room uh, where Candace Buckner of the Washington Post asked Paul Millsap about it. Paul, do you feel like this um, matchup between you and Markeith is becoming personal? He just said in the locker room that you're a crybaby. Mm. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> oh. That is Dennis Schroeder in the background. No. It's, it definitely got personal now, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't care. So what? Um, take his loss and go back to the hotel. Um, be ready for the next game. Oh, do we have the extended cut where Schroeder just giggles more? Oh, that's actually most of it. I guess it's better on video. You can tell, you can hear Schroeder clearly uh, on the video. Oh my God, Schroeder's face, Dennis Schroeder, the German man with the 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 Andre Blotch in his hair, as in as in a blotch, and so I call it the Andre Blotch. Uh, the he's just like he literally takes his gigantic hand his hands are enormous like when they called him german rondo it's the best comparison i've ever heard he's erratic as a player he can't really shoot it that well uh he does all kinds of silly things on the court and he's got gargantuan mitts but he takes his his enormous hand and just covers his face like oh no oh no do we have do we have the dennis schroeder oh no Oh, co- come on, Peach. We can no, no. It, the the first, like at the beginning of the answer, after after Candace asks the question before Paul starts answering. Can we get the Dennis Schroeder? Oh, he just knows. He just knows. Mm. Oh my God. Oh no. no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I think most apps that answer is actually great. Take your loss and go back to your hotel. Um, again, this doesn't really bother me from either side. Um, if I was Millsap and I was getting bludgeoned, I think I'd say something. If I was Markeith Morris, I would say like, hey, suck it up. This is a good competition. These two, two teams genuinely do not like each other. And while I don't think it's... I'm not Mr. Old School who thinks you have to hate each other to have good competition. I like competing with my friends and refuse to let them get the one up on me because when you, you compete with your friends, then you get bragging rights. Like those, those are important just as much as the, Oh, I got to beat that guy that I hate, but I'm also not dumb. Like this is really fun when teams do not like each other. And I think we're going to reach a boiling point at some point in this series. And there's going to be a little, a little scuffle kerfuffle. Like we're, we're going to have a point in this series where guys have to be separated because Wall and Schroeder are getting after it. Millsap and Morris are getting after it. You know, a guy like Kelly Oubre can be quite the irritant. So I don't know who it's going to be, but someone's, uh, my guess is it's going to be Millsap and Morris are, are going to get into it. 
Um, Wallen Schroeder, by the way, in that game, did receive double techs. So it's already happened a little bit. Uh, some yapping back and forth. And we'll see where it goes. As for the basketball, the Wizards, just they need someone else to get going offensively. And whether that's Bogdanovich, which everyone seems to be want, wanting it to be him, whether it's Jason Smith, whether it's Morris, uh, who was good in the first two games, not that great, uh, obviously, yesterday. They need Beal to get going, and then they need someone else. And then we'll go from there and see what they can do. The man who's been on the call for most of this series and will continue to do so moving forward on the play-by-play side, the great Ian Eagle joins me next. Uh, then we get to some NFL draft talk to close out the hour. I feel like I've done enough homework to have a definitive opinion on Joe Mixon. I will tell you that opinion coming up at 45 after. I'm Craig Hoffman. This is the Hoffman Show on 106.7 The Fan. Flips it ahead for Wall. Wall drives in. Wall to scoop. The sweet vocal stylings of Ian Eagle, NBA on TNT. You hear him during football season on CBS and right here on the radio. Thanks to Westwood One. You'll hear him right now as well. Ian joins me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Ian, good morning, my friend. How are you? Hey, Craig. Good morning. So we have uh, an interesting little series developing all of a sudden as Ian's been on the call uh, for Hawks and Wizards and will continue to do so. Uh, moving forward, at least for Game Four, uh, we'll see how the assignments shake out from there. Uh, but when when you look at uh, this series, how unsurprised or surprised were you at the Game Three result? Let's start there. I uh, surprised at how resounding it was. Uh, I thought Washington would put up more of a fight. It was a deep hole, and it was early, and the knockout punch was delivered. They made a bit of a run in the fourth quarter, as we know. That was with the second unit, but not enough to get over the hump. Not enough to to really plant the seed of doubt in the minds of the Hawks that this game was going to go in any other direction. I I think uh, going into game three, the curiosity that Greg Anthony and I had was simply on how the Wizards would handle themselves. We asked Scott Brooks about it before the game, uh, talking about playing on the road in the postseason after winning the first two games at home. And uh, do you talk to your team about how things change and uh, the shift in the emotion? And he said he didn't really want to get into the negative side of things, but did certainly stress the fact that it was going to require a, a lot of energy to to get it done in, in this venue. They just didn't have it. They didn't have it early. Uh, they got pretty good looks. They couldn't make shots. And the uh, assist-to-turnover ratio that we focused in on from the first two games completely flipped in Game 3 in favor of Atlanta. Did the result yesterday change the way you think about this series at all? No. Uh, I I still uh, had a strong feeling that, that Washington came in with more momentum, the better team, the better resume this year. But uh, I do think we have a tendency to overreact based on the game at hand and then make some larger proclamations about what's going to happen in the series. This game four uh, clearly now will uh, force us to to form some other opinions. If Atlanta found something, if they uncorked something from game three to game four, then you and I might have to have a deeper conversation as to how it's going to go the rest of the way. 
Yeah, the Memphis-San Antonio series, as an example, uh, most people had written San Antonio into the second round after what they saw in the first two games. Greg and I worked that game three. Memphis battled, uh, got a win, played very well. I wanted to reserve judgment until game four. And in game four, it looked like Kawhi Leonard was going to single-handedly win the game for San Antonio. They go to OT, and Mike Conley continues his assault. Gasol hits uh, what amounts to be a buzzer beater with .7 left, and now you got a 2-2 series, and, and you feel like it's a toss-up, and all the faults and flaws of San Antonio have come to the forefront. I don't think I'm ready to make those kind of statements about Washington. You know, I'm not either. This I picked the Wizards to win the series in five, which means the Hawks would have to win one, and, and to me, this was probably the most likely one mm-hmm. they would get. Um, NBA playoff series are a series of adjustments. If you think of an adjustment that the Wizards might want to make moving forward, Forward, uh, to shift things back in their favor, uh, what do you, do you think? Or if you talk to GA about it, what what, what did he say about it? Yeah, I, I think uh, with Washington, the, the two glaring issues in, in Game 3, Beal just not shooting it well. Now, you can't just flip a switch and, and hope that Bradley shoots better. The law of averages tell you that he will, that at some point he regains his stroke. He hasn't really shot it well in this series, if we're just looking strictly at him as a jump shooter, but attacking the rim, which I thought he did a much better job this season than in past years, getting to the basket, forcing the issue, creating his opportunities and cashing in on them. We just didn't see that. He was settling uh, for the most part in game three, a few air balls from Bradley Beal, which is uncharacteristic. So that's the first part of the equation. Second part, Gortat had little to no role offensively. The one thing I've noticed with Washington this year, and I think it was a conscious effort from Scott Brooks, knowing that John Wall can get his own stuff when he needs it, and they can feature Beal and Porter, who played so well in the first half of the season shooting the ball from three-point territory. I don't think they worried as much about those guys getting offense or creating shots for them. Gortat, it seemed as if in uh, the games that I saw this year, they really tried to get him involved, get him a touch right out of the gate, sometimes on the opening possession, just to make him feel part of it. He didn't feel part of it at all yesterday, and uh, when he finally got a couple of shots off, it was uh, later in the game and wasn't necessarily in the rhythm of the offense. So a main adjustment for me would be to get Gortat some touches early. And, you know, that bench, which we thought would be improved with Bogdanovich, Boyan had 11 points, but he was 3 of 9 and uh, didn't play particularly well. I've seen a lot of him, obviously, doing Nets games Mm -hmm. the last few years. Uh, He just... He didn't look like he was in it at all. And and the minutes have been sporadic, and maybe that would be another adjustment as well. Just find some uh, stronger minutes for Bogdanovich and uh, maybe uh, get a little bit tighter in the rotation of uh, who you want and where you want them. Uh, but uh, the last one would be Porter. Uh, the fact of the matter is in this series, I think they've done a great job, Atlanta, in trying to take him out of it. But at some point, he's got to be more of a part of it. And I know he still makes winning plays. Even if he's not making shots, he'll tip a ball. He'll hit the deck. He'll keep a ball alive. He'll scrape at a ball and knock it free and disrupt a a possession for the opponent. But I'd like to see him more involved offensively as well. 
Ian Eagle of the NBA on TNT with me, Craig Hoffman, here on 106.7 The Fan. Yeah, that rotation thing's been really interesting for Scott Brooks this series, the way the fouls have have played out. Um, It's been a really, really difficult series to coach from him. Uh, You called games one and three. Game two was a a mess. I'm sure you wound up watching it uh, either live or or back on tape. Uh, what, What have you made of the officiating and the physicality in this series? Well, yeah, the tone was set pretty early, and they let some plays go early, and I think that's what drew the uh, ire of of one Paul Millsap. Uh, there were some fouls that, that were not called, and maybe that was a message from the officials. And, by the way, it does shift from game to game to game. It's not the same crew. So right. when we make these uh, these statements about officiating, uh, I do think each game takes on its own life in many ways. Uh, a lot of free throws, 32 of them for Atlanta. They didn't shoot the ball well last night. Uh, 17 of 20 for Washington. That's been a recurring theme throughout this series. But there's also a, a lot of back and forth between these two teams, individually between Wall and Schroeder, individually between Millsap and Morris. So I think the officials are trying to police that. They're humans. They know what's going on. Uh, There is a report filed after every game, and the next officiating group will see that report and have a better understanding of what happened in previous games because they've been all over the place working their other assignments. So um, I I don't want to say that guaranteed you're going to see a quick whistle in in game four i want to see who the crew is if you've got a a serious veteran in the lead position of that crew that that could change things and discussions take place before the game but they'll look for things and there's no doubt the the morris and Millsap combination has grabbed the attention of these officials how could it not it's it's been fiery it's been physical And I think there have been a few times where the officials have been well within reason to make the calls that they've made because they don't want this thing to to spin out of control. Last question I have for you, um, and I'm going to lean on your experience of 20-plus of years of calling NBA basketball here, um, but John Wall's made a few plays in this series, and he does it on the regular. Uh, it's just yeah. I, I've... I've gotten to to appreciate him so much more watching him in person as you do when you get to watch greatness in person regularly. Where he is simply running past guys um, and full, you know, off makes. And UNGA did a great job of highlighting that during the game yesterday. Where even off of makes, he is running past guys and just using his speed. And he is running past some of the best athletes on planet Earth. And I cannot think of a guy ever watching NBA basketball that is able to do that with the regularity that he does, can you? Yeah, his baseline-to-baseline speed is the best that I've seen in in 23 years. Now, it's not to say he's the fastest guy. There have been other fast players in the NBA, but it's the combination of his speed and his physical nature. He's 6'4", 210. He's sculpted his body. He's well put together. So there have been quick guys in the NBA that are usually diminutive and they'll find cracks or they'll squeeze through little openings. John Wall does it at warp speed and then does it with a physical edge that I just haven't seen. It's it's also 
amazing to me that it's straight line speed. There are guys that the cutting ability, zigzagging, like Derek Rose when he came into the league, I think he shocked people by his ability to cut on a dime and find angles that, that other players just didn't have. John can do that, but he chooses to take the most direct way to the rim, which is straight. And usually players are, are uh, prepared for that. They're, they've been schooled in how to stop people that are going straight at you. You just get in front of them. You get in between them and the rim. And then as a defender, you use your physical abilities to either force him into a charge or at least alter his, his path. It doesn't seem to work on John Wall. I've been, I've been blown away by his skills before. Going back to Kentucky, I did a bunch of games that year. Uh, for whatever reason, I just had them a, a lot. I had them on TV, I had them on the radio, in the SEC tournament, and then in the NCAA tournament. And I just thought he was uh, spectacular. And it's it's carried over to the pros. I just think he's refined his skills, and, and he's figured out what works for him. Look, you make your reputation, as we know, in the regular season. There are 82 games. You create a persona in this league. But your legacy is built in the playoffs, and, and that's really the next step for John Wall. Ian Eagle, NBA on TNT. Always enjoy your calls, my friend. Hopefully uh, you'll be up here for Game 5 uh, or something later in the playoffs, and I will get to see you then. I look forward to it, Craig. Always nice to talk to you. Thank you, sir. That's Ian Eagle. NBA on TNT. Game 4 is tomorrow night. Ian and Greg Anthony and Ali LaForce will be on the call. Mixon to me is incredibly intriguing because he is on the opposite end of his career of where Ray Rice was when Rice uh, and Rice did the same thing. Rice, Ray Rice, you know, uh, knocked out his fiance at the time, his now wife, uh, and it was caught on video. Joe Mixon, uh, when he was 18 years old, about three years ago, uh, was intoxicated and uh got into an argument with a woman and cold cocked her and knocked her out. And it's on video, which shouldn't matter, but does. The difference, of course, is that Ray Rice was coming off a season in which he averaged less than four yards a carry, and Joe Mixon is one of the most talented backs in a draft full of really talented running backs. And so with all of his career ahead of him, someone is going to draft him. Someone is probably going to draft him in the first three rounds. I doubt we see his name called on Thursday, but it's not impossible. And as a player like Tyreek Hill, who similarly had a domestic violence uh, charge against him and and did something awful uh, while he was at Oklahoma State uh, to a woman, uh, he has been incredible for the Chiefs and has helped them win games. So in the football sense, it's like, yeah, no, this guy can help our team. And for me... It's not a black and white issue in that most people, it's either, oh, he did this thing, he's off our board. And I don't, I don't think like that. I'm more nuanced like that because experts in the field of domestic violence uh, will tell you that it's more nuanced than that. And I choose in situations that are serious to listen to people that are smarter than me. And so as domestic violence... And sexual violence has become 
a more prevalent issue over the last five years in pro sports, not to mention uh, just where I am in my life. Uh, I've become a more worldly person because I'm five years ago I was a 22 year old idiot because all 22 year olds save the rare genius are idiots. Uh, and now I'm a, a young, a, a, an older young adult uh, as I creep closer to 30. Um, that's, that's just like part of growing up and understanding the world around you and, and the nuanced levels of, of different things. You learn about the world. Um, and so when it comes to domestic violence, there is such a thing as rehab. And the first thing that you have to understand is a real, there, there needs to be some real remorse and sincerity and an understanding that something wrong was done. And as I've read more about Joe Mixon, the more I believe recently he really does believe that. There was some stuff early, and I think part of this also, when you look at a kid who was 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, in a program at Oklahoma that was overly, in a not helpful way, protective of him, he did not come off looking that way. It looked like it was trying to be swept under the rug. And the more I've read about this situation, the more... I do believe that he has an understanding of what was done, the serious nature of it, the destruction it can have on someone's life. Because a domestic violence something is not, it's not an incident that's over. And then when, not to be, to be coy about it, but when the sore jaw goes away, it's done. It's not how this works. It is a scarring thing that affects a person for probably the rest of their life. And I believe that Joe Mixon understands that at this point. He went through anger management. I wish there's there's not been a lot of great uh, reporting done on how extensive the classes in terms of rehabilitation and uh, the, the anger management classes that he took but he took them. There's 100 hours of community service and anger management that he had to go through as part of his plea deal. So if he has addressed the root of the problem, understands the serious nature and long-term consequences of what he did, and is continually working to become a better person moving forward, because once you do this thing, your life does not stop. Now, if you want to argue that the legal system should make your life stop for some period of time and that you should be in prison, that is a different story. I can't, I can't talk about that. I mean, I could talk about that, but that is, that is not what the discussion is here. We're, we're discussing the reality of where Mixon is, not where he could potentially be and get diving off that deep end. The reality is he is a free man and that he is not incarcerated and he is available to be drafted. And to me, what I've read and what teams feel about him and what he is saying in these interviews and what he said in interviews that I've read, if the Redskins wind up drafting him, for instance, on, th- on Thursday night, I'd probably be complaining because they didn't get good value. But if they go after him in the second round, you're not going to hear me say oh that you can't do this he did this thing 
And if you've listened to me extensively, you know how seriously I take this stuff. Because, and this is something that I wish I had more time now, and we'll get back to this as we go, and I have a couple calls, and I would love to get to those, and we will um, later on in the show. But I'm reading this article by Bob McGinn of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that has all these quotes about from executives and how, how can you in our large market how could you in any market take that guy earlier in general off the board me personally i'd have a very t- hard time living with that to me that's just such an un- nuanced understanding um this nfc executive i really think without the incident he's a top five pick he's probably going late to uh late first to mid second this guy's too talented what he did was terrible it was three years ago he got suspended it hasn't it is not like he hasn't paid a price. Since he did, he's been fine. It will come down to the owner. I think a lot of owners will be very skeptical doing it. If I was in the late 20s, I'd take him. That, to me, is much more nuanced. That, yes, of course, your owner has to be comfortable and make that decision. But he's, and by the way, Joe Mixon has had some other incidents um, since then. He's, he's had some issues with his temper. He's, he's hot-tempered. Um, but being hot-tempered in general is different than capable of doing what he did again. And so I'm not going to freak out if the Redskins draft him. I'm not going to say this This makes Bruce Allen and Daniel Snyder the worst ever. Rehab is possible for these things, and I believe Joe Mixon has taken steps in that direction. But what is also clear, and what I'll get to later in the show uh, as well, is that the NFL still has a ton to learn about this stuff because the nuanced understanding that I have of it is far beyond people that are getting paid a lot more to have a nuanced understanding amongst the many other things they're being paid to do. Philadelphia, the site of the first round, actually it's the site of the entire draft, but first round is Thursday coverage. Follows Nats and Rockies right here on 1067 The Fan. It'll be me and Chris Russell in studio. Brian McNally will join us frequently from Redskins Park. He joins me right now. Brian, hello, sir. How are you? Craig, what's happening? What's going on? Just getting ready for the draft. Just reading the 150 pages of notes that you sent me. That's all I've been. That's all I've done since since I left you earlier this week. That's all I've done is just read a computer screen with 150 pages of notes. It's uh, good stuff. Yeah, you're doing your homework. I appreciate that. It's um, it's really bad too. Mel Kiper's voice will not get out of my head. Uh, it's taught, 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 taught. Uh, but that's that's a different uh, story. Um, all right, so. I've actually spent most of my draft time this morning talking about Joe Mixon. And basically my conclusion is I have read enough about Mixon that I feel comfortable with him getting drafted, that I believe he has actually put in the work to better himself as a human being, express real regret and remorse. Um, And that was also seen in the settlement this week in the statement by the young woman uh, that he uh, just completely uh, unacceptably hit. Um, And, that is my opinion. If the Redskins draft Joe Mixon in the first round, I don't think it's good value. But if they were to draft Joe Mixon in round two what would, or round three, what would your reaction be? Um, I, I guess it would be, I guess it would be understandable, uh, knowing the reality of the NFL, Craig. I mean, he's going to get another chance. Um, there will be people who argue he shouldn't. He shouldn't ever get another chance. That in the in the modern NFL. Um, he can't stand for what he did. Um, in reality, that's probably not thing, how things are going to play out. He's going to land somewhere. That team will have to answer for it. Um, the work that, as you've said, he's 
put in to get better and, and not make a mistake like that again, uh, you know, he's, he's going to have to prove it, I guess. Um, and, and the team is get whatever team takes him is going to take a ton of heat and they better be ready for that. They better have a plan for that. They better have a plan for him to keep him on that, on that path because he's shown what he's capable of. Um, and you can say you're better and, and all of, all of that, but only time will actually determine that. So you, you have to keep him, um, on the path that he's been on, um, at 49. Yeah. I mean, as a value pick, he's he's a really really good running back you are going to get a really really good player um it's just a matter of of do you have that plan in place and can you keep him um you know from making that kind of mistake ever again if you're confident you can take him deal with the pr heat and uh and move on with a pretty good player if you if you don't or if you think if your organization isn't structured that way Better be prepared to to pay the price if if he messes up again, because um, you're not gonna, he's not going to get he's not getting multiple other chances, right, Craig? He's he's oh, done yeah. if he makes a mistake like that ever again. So, uh, and I hesitate. I, I don't even want to call it a mistake. I mean, it's beyond that. So, right. Uh, so you're taking a risk with it uh, at 49. But you know, talent wins out in this league. We we all know that. There are no there are no angels in pro sports. Um, and so probably if if he was there, I, I would bet they would take him. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, I would say that my one concern uh, would be on the Redskins side of it, that they are not the team that's going to set him on that path. But that's, you know, that's kind of fair what, point. What, what we're yeah, dealing with Totally here. fair point. Um, all right. Uh, other players that we're going to look at. Uh, I, I think my number one guy that the, for the Redskins when this process started, a uh, realistic guy, I should say, because Miles Garrett's not going to be available, um, would right. be Malik Hooker. Uh, and now all of a sudden it looks like he may be available at 17, but the reason he is would be available is that there are a lot of teams that have a lot of injury concern about him. What is your level of concern uh, from what you are hearing talking to people around the league on Malik Hooker and the likelihood that the safety from Ohio State, who is the best ball hawk in this draft, is available for the Redskins to take and pair with DJ Swearinger uh, there in the secondary? Yeah, I mean, it. it's kind of amazing that a guy like that who was pretty much considered a consensus top you know, seven, eight pick throughout this process would, would drop this late. Um, you know, the injury issues are kind of a, a thing with him. Um, you know, that you understand that and, and you get teams being a little concerned, but they're not major issues, right? They're not like issues that, uh, you know, he, he had a terrible broken leg or, or something happened where you would be really, really concerned that uh, his, his, abilities going forward would be impacted. So uh, look, if he's there, that's a position of, of need. I don't see how you would pass on him. Uh, had a great career at Ohio state. Um, got safety who can cover all those things that uh, this team needs anyway. Uh, if he, if he drops that far, I think you have to, uh, have to be prepared to take him. Even if you're a little concerned about the injury situation, um, he just has he just has too much going for him. I, I would be I'd be shocked if they if they passed on him. I, I'd honestly still probably be shocked, Craig, from what I'm hearing if he fell all the way to 17. But you never know at this time of year either. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's going to be a quarterback available at 17. It's a matter of which one, um, because the quarterback rankings in this draft are all over the place. Some people still swear by Deshaun Kaiser of Notre Dame. Most people, I think, are on Deshaun Watson or Mitch Trubisky. But there's also a 
a very vocal uh, Pat Mahomes group as well. Let's say Watson uh, or Trubisky is available. The two, the two uh, most common top two guys is available at 17. With the Kirk contract still not settled and not going to be settled uh, by Thursday, what is the likelihood that the Redskins do pull the trigger on one of those guys or that if a guy like Kaiser is available in the second round, that they pull the trigger on him? Yeah, I think that's a more likely scenario, Craig. And I, I don't know about Kaiser specifically. I mean, people are, as you said, especially with him, just all over the place. He's a he's a big body. He's a strong guy, big arm. Uh, but his mechanics are, are kind of a mess. And, and you just don't know if, uh, if you can correct that stuff. You really would have to be confident that, um, that you, first of all, could give him time to, to address that stuff at the pro level um, because his, his production just wasn't what it, you know, what Trubisky put up at Carolina, what Watson put up at, at Clemson. So, um, you know, an, an interesting choice there. I would be beyond stunned if they took a quarterback at 17. I mean, I just don't think any quarterback in this draft really is worth a first-round pick. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest, if, if they go in the top two or something or, or those – those coaches or those organizations decide to, to go with uh, Trubisky or, or Watson or whoever, I, I'd be stunned. Um, and so I, without a first-round talent, I think you, you hold off on quarterback at 17. I do think they have to address it. Maybe they even wait a little bit later. Maybe they go um, you know, third round. Uh, Josh Dobbs from Tennessee is an option. Nate Peterman from Pitt. Ironically, they were both at Tennessee at the same time. And uh, Peterman transferred out, but to me, that's that's a more likely scenario, um, and I don't know that they'd even address that in the second round. But you want to add another piece because Kirk's situation is so uncertain. You have to have another young guy to go with Nate Sudfeld, who we'll get a chance this summer. But let's be honest, was a lesser prospect coming out of college, so it, it's just hard to pin your hopes on a sixth round pick. If you think you found the next Tom Brady, I have the newsflash. You didn't. Uh, that's not happening. So uh, you'd be lucky to have found even a, a competent backup, to be honest, at that spot. So I, I think the Redskins do need to address quarterback. I, I think it's far more likely to be, say, in the third or fourth round than at 17. Uh, any any predictions for draft day, first, first, first round of draft day? Uh, this is so unsettled. Uh, I don't know, Craig. I don't think... I'm looking at it and, and kind of the conventional wisdom we've had for months. And I know it, it always gets upended a little bit, but it, it, it's kind of just shocking to me how far some guys are falling. You know, you have top 10 picks that uh, have, you know, red flag character issues and or injury issues uh, that have kind of knocked them down a little bit. Um, uh, this, this has potential, I think, Craig, to be like a crazy day. Like one of these days where, in the first 10 minutes, there's a big trade that the the crowd in Philly starts booing and eyeing and, you know, who knows, like maybe the Eagles trade up. I feel like this is going to get a little bit nuts, uh, which is fun for us as, as yep. media, as fans watching. That's kind of what you we were hoping for, right? You want one of those days where everything just goes haywire and, and teams are making picks that don't make any sense. And uh, it, it's all kind of going crazy. I'm I'm kind of rooting for that more than anything. I am too, because I'm going to be in a room with the rooster, who, by the way, just walked into the studio across the way. Chris, nice. I don't want the first round to be so nuts. I want to see if it can make your head explode. Just actually kaboom. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to have to be on cleanup duty after that. 
Uh, but I, I would like to see that happen because I think it would be quite entertaining. Uh, Brian, we'll be talking to you a bunch on Thursday. I'm sure you and I will be talking a lot leading up to that as we get ready for this. Uh, appreciate your time uh, here today, and I will talk to you this week, my friend. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Brian McNally on Twitter, at McNally 14 uh, You can also, of course, always read his very excellent work, stupendous, at thefandc.com. We have one more hour of radio programming to fill, to fill our duties for the day. We'll start it with Eric Edholm of Yahoo Sports Shutdown. Corner on Craig Hoffman here on The Fan. Then, then Chris Russell gets to talk. Uh, Unless you're listening to this late afternoon on the replay, then it's Nationals and Mets here on the fan. But we're talking NFL draft right now with Double E. Eric, how are you, my friend? Well, you are a hero, actually, because you got me out of vacuuming the basement, which uh, was on my my honey-do list. So I... I not all heroes wear capes, man. I, I do appreciate that. This one just wears headphones and a hat. I'm wearing a hat right now, which is which is nice. <laughs> I have uh, no hat on today, so we're, we're in different universes, though. All right, different universes, different uniforms. Talking about the same thing here uh, in the NFL draft. Looking forward to Thursday, round one. Uh, of course, our coverage here on the fan will start right after the Nationals. I've talked about all the morning. Chris and I will have that. Uh, Eric, I'm sure you guys will be blogging along the way. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric underscore at home. Um, when, what, there's a whole bunch of like swirling storylines that have made their way out over the last week. Guys rising, guys falling. This guy's off a board. This guy's you know being considered in this place. Which of uh, of those you think is the most significant that is true that has come out in in the last week or so? Well, I'll say this. I you know the, the Joe Mixon stuff. First of all, kind of work backwards and, and then work our way into the first round. Um, you know, I, I've only been able to confirm a few teams who have definitively removed them, for, uh, removed him from their board, and you know, a couple have said, "Hey, don't don't put that out there. We need to keep that in house." But we know of a few. Um, but there are some teams very much still considering him, and and where he goes is sort of a point of contention. You know, I, the news that that may there may have been another incident in high school that was sort of debunked, and then the the settlement with the the victim, the girl he punched back in 2014. I think that was interesting timing, you know, before the draft and making sure people know that sort of thing, a very positive statement from her. So, you know, Peter Schaefer, his agent, their camp, they're trying to get all the, the positive vibes out there. And I think that'll be a, a fascinating day two story. I think there's, um, you know, so, some real intrigue about where he goes because he is probably a first-round talent. Now working our way kind of forward towards the top of the draft, you know, everybody's fixated on what the Browns will do at one. I still suspect it's Miles Garrett. You know, I haven't give, been given a strong enough indication that they're going to go Trubisky or somebody else at one. So for me, assuming that's what ends up happening, the real intrigue starts at number two and number three, uh, the 49ers and Bears. And I think those two picks will help kind of set the table for the next six or eight picks. Do the Niners trade down? Are they still considering a quarterback? I don't think so, but maybe. Um, You know, is there a defensive player they love? Is it Leonard Fournette? And then the Bears at three. Defensive player, I would think. But possibly we've heard a little quarterback talk as well. So, you know, if two quarterbacks end up going in in the the high portion of top ten, that really makes things very intriguing for the teams picking right after that. I think that's... Oh, no. Tragic. Oh, 
he was getting to the quarterback still, which is where I think this draft becomes really, really interesting. Um, and we'll pick back up with Eric. Uh, may- maybe because he was so happy about vacuuming, not vacuuming the basement, perhaps his wife heard that and then just came and found him and snatched his phone away. Probably not. Um, the quarterback stuff is interesting because I think a quarterback could go as high as two or three, or a quarterback could not go until mid-teens, something like that. Eric's back with us now. Um, we were talking about the quarterbacks and, and the trickle-down, and then, then your phone like got zapped by aliens or something. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. I'm, I'm okay, though. Uh, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I, Excellent. I, I don't know exactly where I left off, but right. I mean, the point being is if quarterbacks go in the kind of upper reaches somewhere in the top 10, you know, from Buffalo at 10, anywhere above that one or two quarterbacks, the teams picking in the teens have to be thrilled. You know, the more quarterbacks go ahead of that, the more teams that don't need QBs, that's going to be really exciting for them. So, yeah, two and three, I think, are, are really fascinating spots. And then you start thinking about, you know, what the Jets will do at six. They've brought in a ton of quarterbacks and, you know, teams like that. The the, the Bengals, I think, are going to be a wild card at number eight, uh, number nine. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting draft, and there's a lot of, uh, lot of moving parts right now. Eric Edholm, Yahoo Shutdown Corner blog with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. If you had to guess the order of the first four quarterbacks, not necessarily where they are picked, but the order in which they are picked, how would you uh, prescribe that right now? Yeah, I would probably guess, you know, and and it's, you know, barring some dramatic trade-up, or I mean, that could happen, and that's the thing. We don't really know, but if I just had to guess, I would say Trubisky first, Patrick Mahomes second, Deshaun Watson third, and then it gets a little murky, I would guess, Deshaun Kaiser, but it would not stun me if he's not the fourth quarterback taken. I, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's funny because some teams like him. They really do. And think that he would be a hot property after a certain point when we get into the 30s, maybe the late first round or early second. But, you know, you, you start hearing some other names and you kind of just shrug and say maybe there is a, a different order out there. But I would think that's close to the order with, with the Holmes and Watson possibly flipping. Yeah, that's the interesting thing to me is that you would say Mahomes before Watson. Is that is there a team? I mean, obviously, I don't, I haven't seen anything out there that this team loves Patrick Mahomes. Um, but is there a team that that say, hey, keep this under wraps? But man, if Mahomes is available, work there. Like, is there a team in that top fifteen that you think could could pull the trigger on him? Well, there are a few teams that really, really like him, and the question is, you know, like, do the New Orleans Saints think Drew Brees has a year left or three years left? Do the Arizona Cardinals play for now and try to win with Carson Palmer this year? Or do they draft Mahomes and say, come on in, give, you know, give us a year to back him up, and then you're the guy? Because you really probably only have one more year with Carson Palmer and one more year maybe two with, with Larry Fitzgerald. I would think on the one hand you say, well, let's give it one final push. We were a Super Bowl contender you know, a year ago at this time. We had a rough year, but we can still, you know, we still have talent. Do you go for that, or do you try to think about tomorrow a little bit? So those are two interesting teams in the, in the, in the early teens that I think would be possibilities. And the Browns at 12, you know, they're, they're going to take a quarterback at some point. And I would think, you know, to me, the, the, the feeling is that Deshaun Watson would be a very nice pick for a lot of teams. The ceiling may not be as high as what Mahomes is, but the floor is lower for Mahomes. If you are whoever the hell is running the draft for the Washington Redskins, Bruce Allen, Scott Campbell, whoever whoever is in charge of the room, um, who do you want on the board when you come on the clock at 17? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you have multiple choices at safety, at corner, maybe a defensive line, although they've kind of you know picked some some people there. Those are those are all good things. Um, you know, I, I I think they're pretty stocked at receiver. I don't necessarily think a tight end's on the docket. Maybe if there is an offensive lineman they love, thinking that you know what, we're probably not going to get this guy later. But I just my gut says that's not the direction they go. So. The more safeties, corners, pass rushers, and sort of cloggers up front, you know, that's, that's the, the, the feeling I had before Scott McClune was, uh, was uh, let go. I wouldn't think it changes a whole lot, but you never know. Like you said, there's a, you know, making a mock draft, when you get to that pick, you go, huh, okay, let me think. Do I go safe, obvious choice, big-name player? Do I go kind of off-the-radar player? It really is uh, tough to forecast what they might do. Malik Hooker's the guy I've wanted for them throughout this entire process, and now it looks like if I get my wish, it's going to be because he fell due to injury. What's the latest that you're hearing on him in league circles in terms of how how far he could fall and, and how nervous teams are about his injury past? I haven't really sensed a ton of nerves. I've seen a few little things that have come out, and I know that you know they had to kind of release a statement to say all's good. You know, his his, his labrum slash uh, hernia surgery went well. Uh, you know, the, the feeling I've had on on Hooker, he's such an exciting player to watch. I mean, he's you see him out there in his first college start against Bowling Green, makes two acrobatic picks, almost houses the second one. The instincts, the range, I mean, they're rare. You know, and and. You guys had one there in Sean Taylor. I'm not comparing the players, but I'm saying they have similarities in terms of their range and coverage ability. Now, Sean was obviously a bigger hitter. Malik Hooker is not exactly what I would call an eraser at back there. But he, you know, he's, a, he's a great center fielder, and he could be special in the right defense. And we know they need a coverage safety. That would make a lot of sense. But 17, man, I just I, – I, Unless you like you said, those those medicals are far worse than I've heard they are. I just don't see him getting there. I think he's, I think he's a top ten player, and I I wrote him up the other day and said I think I would have him number two on my board if he'd started more than a, a thirteen fourteen games, whatever it was, and he had a clean medical history. I put him right behind Miles Garrett as far as upside. He is wow. he could be special. Wow, that's that's crazy. A lot of people have Jamal Adams, safety at LSU, number two on their board. Last guy I want to ask you about, getting a lot of buzz, but a lot of people think he could wind up here as well, is McCaffrey, uh, Christian McCaffrey out of Stanford, obviously. Um, I've, I keep seeing things, top ten, could go to Carolina at eight. Uh, is that buzz real uh, around McCaffrey, and what do you make of him? I would, If I had to guess uh, a range that he would go in, it would be starting at eight. I mean, yeah, there are maybe one or two spots ahead of that where it makes sense. I just I couldn't ever pull the trigger. I couldn't ever figure out, yeah, this team is committed to using him in, in a, an expansive role, or that would be their, their first choice. So I'd say you're right. Starting at about eight with Carolina, and it's going to be tough to get him past Philly. There, there's been a lot of talk about him there. That makes sense. I know that you know people are maybe a little bit fed up with, with Ryan Matthews and the situation there, and maybe Darren Sproles is kind of on his last hurrah. So you know, that would make a lot of sense. It would give Carson Wentz a real dependable player to help kind of take the pressure off. He could be a slot receiver. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced of it. And he can, he's going to impact your, your return units day one. He didn't touch the ball fewer than 18 times in any game the past two seasons. So 
all this talk about, is he a workhorse? Yeah, he's he just not your traditional workhorse. He touches the ball a lot, and he does it very, very well. So, to me, I think he's going to be gone before that Redskins pick. But, you know, you never know. Like I said, the more quarterbacks that go above that spot, sometimes it'll push a player down that you're not expecting, and, and maybe he's one of them. It should be a fun night on Thursday, and then we get two more days of it, Friday and Saturday. You can read all of the coverage. Yahoo Sports Shutdown Corner. Eric Edholm does a great job around this time. He does a great job all year, but specifically draft time. Just knocks it out of the out of the park again and again. All right, I don't know if you have to go vacuum in the basement now, but I'm done with you, so you gotta, you got to get find another excuse. Okay, I might just talk into my phone and pretend you're still with me for the next right. 20, 25 minutes. Just talk something about like Dalvin Cook. Talk about uh, <laughs> I, I'll just I'll text your players. Appreciate you, yeah, man. Have you. a great day. All right, buddy. See ya. Hey, Rooster. Want to come talk draft? Because we're going to do this for four hours on Thursday night uh, for the first round of the NFL draft. It's going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to it uh, greatly. Chris Russell is coming up following me noon here on The Fan. Again, unless you're listening to the replay of this show later on in the afternoon, then there's Nats Baseball next. Uh, but for those of you listening live at 11, 19, and 45 seconds, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Russell. Uh, how are you, sir? Cock-a-doodle-doo. Joe the Rooster Russo. Uh, what do you think in terms of uh, 17? Who's your ideal realistic scenario? I mean, if I if I had to pick just one guy that I'm just oozing the, the, the potential usage of, it would be McCaffrey. Um, I think he's clean. I think he's more physical in between the tackles than I think people are going to think he is and giving him credit for. He's not just a gadget. He's not just a guy that you can only use on the perimeter and only use leaking out into the flats. I mean, I think you've seen this by now, right? All the Stanford games, tape, whatever you've watched, you can use him in the slot. You can use him as a traditional wide receiver split. You can use him on either side. You can leak him out of the backfield. You can use him in kind of a wishbone type alignment. You can, but but more importantly, again, you can use him in some short yardage situations. And I've seen Stanford pound him up the middle and him get in using some of his athletic ability to finish it off on a fourth down and goal against UCLA. Uh, I think that was in 2015, one of the tapes that I watched. But the point is, is I think. You can't really use Chris Thompson that way. You can use, I think, McCaffrey more that way. So you can find a way to make those two complement each other along with Robert Kelly. And then, oh, by the way, there's no guarantee that Chris Thompson is staying here more than one more year. So that's your natural, like, get him in the system, teach him pass pro, teach him all the things he needs to do. And, oh, by the way, that's your long-term replacement for Chris Thompson. Right. Well, and also Eric Edholm just said, like, he thinks McCaffrey can play slot. So oh, he you can, absolutely you can, get, can those, yeah. get those guys on the field together. Sure. Something they neglected to do last year with, with Thompson and Kelly, and it drove me nuts mm-hmm. because there were pl- times for injury where I think that could have been beneficial. But, yeah, you can absolutely split one out. You know, there's all kinds of stuff you could do. Um, 
He's probably, I would say, not going to be available, though. What do you think right. is the most realistic pick at 17 for them right now? So if I had to say the most realistic guy that I think has the most upside, would, but people are still kind of, is he a, a late riser? Is he an inside guy? Is he an outside guy? Can you use him situationally? Is Hassan Reddick from Temple. Yeah, I mean, he's I think, shooting up draft. I right. saw as high as like 12 or 13 on one today. So that makes you worried, right? Because... You know, maybe there's a surprise and maybe he even goes higher. Right. But, I mean, there's nothing you can do about that, right? right. I, I mean, if he if he's there at 17, I, I think, uh, for the most part, assuming that McCaffrey... See, here's the thing. I, I think it's more about who's not there than who is there. Right. Um. So, so you think they're going to have good options? I, I tend I to do. agree with you. I think there's enough players that I like the way they fit that... And and also, it's a credit to the way this roster has been built yeah. that there's not some dying need. You don't need a say. Like I would say, safety is the closest thing they have mm-hmm. to a need. Um, but outside of that, like it'd be it'd be nice. Like if they go into next year with the safeties they have now, they can they can make that work. You know, I heard you say that, and I started to think. I said, you know, that's not. You're not wrong on that at all. Even at defensive line now. There's nobody that thinks Stacy Willie McGee and Terrell McLean are going to solve all their problems. No. Nobody thinks that, especially when they lost their two best defensive linemen from last year, and those two guys arguably are not as good as what they've lost, and they were already short there. But right. the point is that they've at least offset some of that loss. They've gotten younger. They've gotten more flexible. I mean, I think... When you look at McGee and you look at McLean, you have some versatility, some positional versatility there. Not that you didn't have that with Chris Baker, but Chris Baker really didn't, he didn't really want to play the nose. So you right. kind of had to stick Ziggy Hood there because Kedrick Golston got it, so on and so forth. Anyway, the point is, I, I think you can say defensive line is certainly still a need, but it's not, oh my God the dumpster fire that say the Dallas secondary is right now, or even the Dallas pass rush is right. I think you can say edge. There's no doubt in my mind, edge pass rusher keeps going up and up and up on the list from where it already was, which was an early primary need, according to a top level source in mid November to where it is now, where our guy, Trent William, uh, Trent Murphy got suspended. Oh, and by the way, junior Gallette is facing another NFL suspension. Possibly. Yeah, so that's that's fun. Oh. <laughs> you seem you seem oh. thrilled at that. So the, that's why I say if said, Hassan hey, Reddick is there, that's, that's standard NFL yeah. dysfunction. That that just happens, right? No, I understand. <laughs> I mean, it's just so like you know, I heard Derek Barnett maybe slipping yep. down some boards. I haven't watched a lot on him. I don't know what your thoughts. I know he gets a lot of sacks. I know and he plays in the a, SEC. Opinions are pretty yeah. split on him. That a lot of people that he might be, and I know this name then invokes a million other things. But like Michael Sam, who had a ton of sacks right. in the SEC, but everyone thought the better player was Coney Ely. That, that he might have been surrounded by some guys that, that helped him look better. And that's perhaps. proven to be true. Coney Ely. Oh, Ely's better, easily better. How did, didn't New England like just steal him this yes. offseason? How did they I mean, always do that? Three Super Bowl, three sacks in the damn Super Bowl. Now, I, I mean. Frustrating. Why do they always get to steal well, because, everybody? Well, because they're smart. 
That that's what I want to cover a smart team. They dip in the restricted free agent market. They stole Chris Hogan. They stole Mike Gillisley, and then they just picked up Coney Ely. Uh, real quickly, because I know you got to run. It, I just started watching Taco Charlton tape yesterday. Mm, tacos, tacos. Uh, I'm like not thrilled with Taco. You know, I mean, like I can't tell if he's just a good player from a really good defense, or if there's something there. I'm sure there's something there. Saw a good spin move. I'm sure there's something there. I just don't know against even better competition if he's not surrounded by elite talent like Wormsley and you know all those Wormley and you know all those other guys that they had uh, Jabril Peppers at Michigan. I'm not sure if he's that guy. And I watched the kid from uh, Alabama that they went to go visit with uh, Tim Williams uh, the other day. All right. Um, Mark Anderson. I'm sorry. All these our, our Alabama yeah, guys are, are yeah, mixing together. There's too many of them. Yeah, again, you know, I mean, guys that are not dominant on the collegiate level are now expected to be first-round picks at the NFL level going right. against better competition. That worries me. Yeah, that worries me, but it's also sometimes like, all right, it was because he was getting triple teamed every time. Right. And it, there's things you have to figure out. There's also like, there's a dynamic between the Ohio State DBs. You're going to tell me all three dudes are first round you know, top half of the first round, Conley, right. Lattimore, and Hooker. Like, it it would make sense that some of those, at least one of those, is benefiting from the other two. If not two of them are benefiting from the other one. And then it's on the job of the scouts to figure out who's benefiting from who. Um, that's and the tricky part of this, That's right? why they get paid the big bucks, and we just get to sit here and criticize them. Uh, Chris Russell, he gets to do that for how many hours are you on today? A long time. Four hours. Four hours? All right. Five. He's coming and then you're up. coming back in for a second tour of duty. Yeah, I'm. Uh, they're just replaying this, so it's <laughs> it's uh, that's coming up later this afternoon. I, I like that you don't have any. You're just like yeah, they're replaying. No, I mean I'm. I think people can probably figure out when I say the exact same words and the exact. Actually, PJ, why don't you just cut up parts of the show and put it in a different order? How about that? How about that for creating extra work for you? think I'm good. All right. Then we'll just, replay it, it. we'll just replay as is. Today hasn't been an awful show, so that's that's nice. Uh, coming, up in, that's nice. coming up in half an hour, Chris <laughs> Russell, unless he was on uh, four and a half hours or three and a half hours ago, then, then he's not. Nat's baseball is coming up next because that's how <laughs> replay make, works. You're making this complicated. Uh, <laughs> pleasure to bring in a new friend, Rick Camilla of NBA TV and 92.9 The Game down in Atlanta, our CBS Sports Radio affiliate down there. Uh, down in Atlanta a couple weeks ago, I was able to hop in studio with Rick and John Michaels on their show, and happy to have Rick uh, on here. Rick, thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, Craig. Good morning, man. What's up? Uh, just excited about the the playoffs, man. This has been a really fun uh, couple of days. That that Memphis San Antonio last uh, game last night was a heck of a lot more fun than the Wizards Hawks games, at least from our end of it up here. Um, I, I would ask you this to start when you watch the Wizards and Hawks. Um, did what happened last night change your opinion of the series at all? It didn't. Um, the the only thing that you know, I picked Wizards in seven. You picked Wizards in five, and. Uh, we're both still on track. You know, if if Atlanta wins game four, then it's 2-2, probably going seven. Uh, if Washington can rally and get game four, then they're going to go home and win game five. So uh, we're both still on track. You know, it depends on what happens in game four. Uh, I actually, you know, Millsap played great. Schroeder played great. Prince played great. Give them a ton of credit. Uh, there was a lot of energy in the building. But, uh, you know, when John Wall has, I think, 29 and the rest of the starters uh, were putrid, um, Markeith hasn't been good since game one. Beal obviously 
uh, good in game one, awesome in game two, and, and really bad in game three. So he's been sort of all over the place. Um, I'm just wondering how hard the Wizards partied on Friday night in Atlanta. I, I'm wondering what kind of factor that may have played uh, in the game yesterday afternoon. It sure seemed like something, and, and Atlanta's a place where, if, if folks aren't familiar, you can get in a lot of trouble in Atlanta, and uh, <laughs> the Wizards played like they did. Um, who would you say, outside of Wall, because he seems to be the sure thing that it, that is going to produce, but on either side moving forward, who is the most important player in this series? Um, good question. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, for you guys, it's Markeith Morris, because when he beasted Paul Millsap in game one, uh, I think Markeith had a plus 20, uh, and, and, and Millsap was a minus 18. Um, and I, I'm, I think I'm within two on both of those numbers, but you know, I know Wall's going to bring it. Uh, and I know that your bench is, is going to do things, whether it's Bogdanovich or Jennings or whoever, you're, you're going to get some spark off that bench. Um, Beal is is an unknown. Uh, you know, I'd put him in there and be in terms of being super important too. But Markeith Morris has gotten worse as the series has gone along, not better. Uh, and now he and Paul Millsap are sniping and all this kind of stuff, and it's actually getting kind of good. Like there's some actual hatred going on here. Um, the most important player for the Hawks. I mean, again, again, another good question. I'd probably say Dennis Schroeder. You know, when he plays like he did yesterday. You know, going downhill with swagger, making shots, uh, making John Wall. You know, really work on both ends um, and really putting that pressure on John Wall. I think that's super important for Atlanta. Um, I'd like to say Dwight Howard is the most important player to Atlanta, but uh, but I can't. I'll, I'll leave it at that, Craig. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's absolutely fair. Rick Campbell, NBA TV, 92.9 The Game, with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Uh, we, we know Markeith Morris is a, is a real, real dude. Uh, what would you say about the personality of Paul Millsap? Um, I mean, Paul Millsap is is a competitor. Uh, he is uh, he's a good guy. Paul Millsap's a great, great guy. You know, he's he's not necessarily about that life, uh, as the saying goes. <laughs> and and Mar- and Markeith Morris kind of is. Uh, so they're different dudes. Look, Markeith Morris is. You know, if if you're if you're going to be in like a street brawl, I want Markeith on my team. I want my I want I want to be on his side, right? Uh, Millsap is just more of, of a methodical, robotic uh, ball player. He just plays. And he does a lot of things on the court <clears throat> from being a glue guy, you know, getting his hands on balls, uh, terrific passer, uh, can make threes, can score at all three levels, mid-range and then at the hoop. So uh, he's a terrific player. He's a great guy. Uh, I don't know how long he is for Atlanta. Uh, with the contract thing coming up, he can opt out this summer and then leave with the Hawks getting nothing in return, or the Hawks can make him, you know, a very, very rich man and uh, keep him happy and keep him in Atlanta. You know, they've got Hardaway, who's a restricted free agent. They've got some major, major decisions to make in Atlanta on two key guys. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting summer, uh, an interesting summer in general around the NBA. All right, let's look at some of the other series. Um, And the the Warriors... Blazers series is only interesting in that the Warriors are doing this now without Kevin Durant and then last night without Steve Kerr and he's apparently going to miss the entire rest of their series I, I would ask you this question this way Rick how unique in NBA history is it that that a team can so easily uh, win in a playoff situation without their probable best player, if you want to say Curry's better than Durant, like fine, it, it, he's they're both exceptional, uh, A plus level players, and without their head coach, and no one seemed to worry about it. 
I think it's because they they know what after game one they knew it was over. Okay, McCollum and Lillard score seventy five points and Golden State cruises to a twelve point victory. So they're like, we got this. We don't need to you know run Kevin Durant out there. I mean, this is essentially an extension of the regular season for the Warriors. Uh, that's how they're looking at this, and it's not even a disrespectful thing. Um, pardon me. They have built a an unbelievable team. And I think they're going to win the championship this year. And they don't have to look, I I think they're going to be able to play the second round the exact same way, whether, whether it's Utah without Gobert or LA without Griffin. um, And I, who knows, like KD may be back and Kerr may be back. But uh, my point is, I think if they wanted to extend and if Katie's just not ready, okay, well, let's hold them out. I still think they would be able to beat Utah and the Clippers uh, with them being shorthanded without Kevin Durant, and, and with relative ease, by the way. Uh, and then, you know, when Steve Kerr, obviously it's very important to get Steve Kerr back as, as soon as they can. Uh, that said, Luke Walton steered them to a 24-0 start last year without Steve Kerr. In terms of on the sidelines, obviously he had influence uh, with emails and phone calls and stuff like that. But I think the Warriors are going to be just fine. Yeah, I agree. They just are so overwhelmingly talented, so good on both ends of the floor. Uh, Back in the East, you have Milwaukee-Toronto being a very, very interesting series. And the question is kind of, are the Bucks ready yet? And obviously that uh, series uh, could determine who the the Wizards see later on in the playoffs. Potentially, probably that team's going to get knocked out by Cleveland, but we'll see. What have have you made of that series and Milwaukee's readiness to win at this level? It's it's a cat-and-mouse series. Uh, You know, it's, it's... it's gone every other with the wins. You know, Milwaukee shocks Toronto in game one. Toronto comes back and wins game two. Uh, in, in, in a, you know, it, that, that should have been like a major punch in a 17-point win, but it wasn't. Like, Milwaukee missed a ton of the shots down the stretch in game two that, that could have given them a 2-0 lead. Uh, then they go back to Milwaukee. I don't know what in the hell happened to Toronto in game three. I mean, they scored like 77 points. Uh, Milwaukee ran him out of the building. Toronto was never in the game. And then you have yesterday, DeMar DeRozan immediately from the, from the, from the opening tip, you know, slashing to the, to the cup, making jump shots. Uh, he was 0 for 8, uh, Craig. I know you know that in game three. And, and he wasn't going to go out like that. So I thought DeMar DeRozan uh, played like an MVP candidate last night. Uh, I've got him on uh, third, third team all NBA uh, at one of the guard spots. I think that's how he was fifth in, in scoring in the league at 27 a game. I don't think a lot of people know that. So, uh, so Toronto rallied and they tied the series at two, but now it's Milwaukee's turn as this cat and mouse game kind of shifts home court advantage really hasn't meant that much uh, in this series, but some tells me Toronto's going to get game five. The Milwaukee's going to get game six and then Toronto's going to win in game seven. I had Toronto in six. Before the series, right now it looks like a seven-gamer. Yeah, that's been a really fun series to watch, even if the offense hasn't been uh, beautiful, we'll call it. Uh, Rick Camilla, NBA TV, 92.9 The Game in Atlanta. With me, Craig Hoffman, here as we're wrapping up our show on 106.7 The Fan. Uh, as for the other Eastern Conference series, the Wizards' next opponent, assuming they can they can finish off the Hawks uh, here in the next couple of, of days, uh, would be the winner of Celtics-Bulls. And it's been a weird series in a lot of different ways. The incredibly 
unfortunate and tragic uh, loss of Isaiah Thomas's sisters hung over this series um, in, in the car crash. And then you have Rajon Rondo's injury and then him looking like he's tripping someone on the bench, which is it's a neat trick and very Rondo-esque, if I do say so myself. Uh, do you think that the Bulls actually have enough talent uh, and, and sustain to be able to pull this off? Or was that a nice little punch at the start and now Boston's... Uh, you know, the the talent that drove them to the number one seed is going to wind up being too overwhelming. The latter, but it's all about the Rondo injury. I, I think if Rondo doesn't get hurt, that the Bulls win the series. And I, I don't think they're I, – I, I didn't have any doubt about that. Uh, 2-0 in Boston. And obviously part of Boston, you know, not playing well enough to win game one and two was because of the loss of Isaiah Thomas's sister. That obviously had an effect on that team, obviously had an effect on Isaiah – and that's just life. Um, you know, when, it, when a terrible, terrible thing happens like that, it's, it, it does not bode well for the competition uh, in the execution and the efficiency of that team. It just doesn't. It's just a fact of life. And God bless Isaiah and his family as they deal with this terrible tragedy. Um, but now Boston's got their legs under them. They got a win. And uh, do, do they get that win in Chicago with Rondo playing? I don't know. Uh, maybe they do get one. But I think that, that Chicago would have won that series had, had Rondo uh, remained healthy. But Because Rondo was awesome uh, in the first two games. And, Craig, uh, you know, I, I, this may have escaped your mind. I, I was talking with people at NBA TV and had to remind – at NBA TV and had to remind them, you know, Rondo led the league in assists last year with 12, uh, playing for the Sacramento Kings. So um, the, the guy can still play. It's, it's a mystery in terms of what makes him tick and what makes him want to play and not want to play. Um, and I think I've got it figured out when, when there's a, a sort of a micromanaging coach, uh, a coach always, you know, trying to get a play in and, and have you run their stuff like a Rick Carlisle, who he and Rondo hated each other. Um, Doc Rivers was a point guard. He wants his point guard to run his stuff, but he had to let go. And, and it was always a delicate balance when they were in Boston winning a championship together, how much Doc influence had and how much Rondo was just out there balling. And I think Hoiberg just like, all right, Rondo, you do it. Screw it. I'm, I'm not even, you know what I mean? And like, that's when Rondo can be the maestro and the artist and be an absolute dazzling player. So uh, I think that's what's up with Rondo. And I think if he were healthy, the Bulls would win it. Now that he's out, I think the Celtics are going to win it. Yeah, I I don't like Rajon Rondo because I was in Dallas while he was there, and he's he's not my favorite. We'll put it that way. Um, last thing, real quick, I got like thirty seconds here on the way out, and I wish I had more time for you to expand on this. Um, but Karan Butler was on our station earlier this week and and said John Wall is the second best player in the Eastern Conference, and I started to think like that's crazy. But then then I started to think I was like, no, it's not, and I don't know who else it would be. Do you agree with that statement? And and who else would be in the conversation? Well, look, I think. Uh... I think I'm kind of just scanning through it right now. I had Isaiah Thomas fifth in MVP voting and I have John Wall sixth, but I would rather have John Wall on my team than Isaiah Thomas. You know what right. I'm saying? I think, yeah. I think Isaiah just had a slightly better year, uh, but I agree. I think John Wall's the second most talented player in the East. And I think John Wall is going to be uh, an MVP player one day. Thanks to Ian, Rick, Brian, Chris, and Eric for coming on the show. Loaded Sunday show as it is a loaded time in the sports calendar. Obviously, you got playoff hoops, playoff hockey, baseball's getting going, uh, NFL draft, all kinds of good stuff. As for my schedule, sports radio-wise this week, I will be at the Wizards game on Wednesday, so I will check in with the Rooster on overtime uh, or DC's pregame or whatever we want to talk. But I'll be on the radio a little bit on Wednesday. And, of course, you can follow my tweets during the game at Craig Hoffman on Twitter, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F. 
M-A-N. Thursday night, first round NFL draft. Friday, probably some NFL draft programming on our Facebook page for 1067 The Fan. And then I'll be back on Sunday to talk about it all. Train with the Best podcast this week was a good one. We talked about cardio and conditioning. So make sure you are subscribed, rating, and reviewing that podcast as well. Again, Train with the Best. Uh, really good stuff with Gorez and Zoe. And speaking of really good stuff from Gorez, uh, we had an event, or specifically he had an event on Saturday, and I, I was there, and so I pulled out my recorder and hooked him up to a microphone, and we recorded all that. And as long as the audio quality isn't trash, uh, we're going to bo- post that as bonus episode edition uh, of the Train With The Best pod, so check that out. Bo show. All right, that's it. I'm done talking. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate, and